You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. So the story is called Loser. And, uh, and like all my stories, it's based on my friends. So, so Loser. The show still looks exactly like when you were sick with a really high fever and you stayed home to watch the, the TV all day. It's not Let's Make a Deal. It's not Wheel of Fortune. It's not Monty Hall or the show with Pat Sajak. It's that other show where the big loud voice calls your name in the audience, says to come on down, you're the next contestant. And if you guess the cost of rice then you fly round trip to live for a week in Paris. It's that show. The prize is never anything really useful like okay clothes or music or beer. The prize is always some vacuum cleaner or a washing machine. Something you might maybe get excited to win if you were like somebody's maid. <laughs> it's rush week and the tradition is that everybody pledging Zeta Delt all have to take this big chartered school bus and need to go to some TV studio and watch them tape this game show. Rules say all the Zeta Delts wear the same red t-shirt with printed on it the Greek Zeta Delta Omega deals, silk screened in black. First you need to take a little stamp of Hello Kitty, maybe half a stamp, and wait for the flash. It's like this little paper stamp printed with Hello Kitty you suck on and swallow, except it's really blotter acid. <laughs> All you do is, the Zeta Delt sit together to make this red patch in the middle of the studio audience and scream and yell to get on TV. These are not the Gamma Grabba thighs. They're not the Lambda Rapidates. <laughs> the Zeta Delts, they are who everybody wants to be. How the acid will affect you. If you're gonna freak out and kill yourself or eat somebody alive, they don't even tell you. It's traditional. Ever since you were a little kid with a fever, the contestants, they call down to play this game show. The big voice always calls for one guy who's a United States Marine wearing some band uniform with brass buttons. There's always somebody's old grandma wearing a sweatshirt. There's an immigrant from some place where you can't understand half of what he says. There's always some rocket science guy with a big belly and his shirt pocket stuck full of pens. It's just how you remember it growing up. Only now, all the Zeta Delts start yelling at you, yelling so hard it scrunches their eyes shut. Everybody's just these red shirts and big open mouths. All their hands are pushing you out from your seat, shoving you into the aisle. The big voice is saying your name, telling you to come on down. You're the next contestant. In your mouth, the Hello Kitty tastes like pink bubble gum. It's the Hello Kitty, the popular kind, not the strawberry flavor or the chocolate flavor somebody's brother cooks at night in the general sciences building where he works as a janitor. The paper stamp feels caught partway down your throat, except you don't want to gag on TV, not on recorded video, with strangers watching you forever. 
All the studio audiences turned around to see you stumble down the aisle in your red t-shirt. All those TV cameras zoomed in. Everybody clapping exactly how, how you remember it. Those Las Vegas lights flashing, outlining everything on stage. It's something new, but you've watched this done a million zillion times before. And just by automatic, you take the empty desk next to where the United States Marine is standing. The game show host, who's not Alex Trebek, he waves one arm and a whole part of the stage starts to move. It's not an earthquake, but one whole wall rolls on invisible wheels. All the lights everywhere flashing on and off, only fast, just blink, 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 except, except faster than a human mouth could ever say. This whole big back wall of the stage slides to one side, and from behind it steps out a giant fashion model, blazing with about a million billion sparkles on her tight dress, waving one long skinny arm to show you a table with eight chairs, like you'd see in somebody's dining room on Thanksgiving, with a big cooked turkey and yams and everything. Her fashion model waist about as big around as somebody's neck, each of her tits the size of your head. <laughs> Those flashing Las Vegas kind of lights blinking all around. The big boys saying who made this table, out of what kind of wood, saying the suggested retail price it's worth to win. The host lifts up this little box like a magician. He shows everybody what's underneath, just this whole thing of bread in its naturally occurring state, the way bread comes before it's made into anything you can eat, like a sandwich or a French toast. Just this bread, the whole way your mom might find it at the farm or wherever bread grows. <laughs> the table and chairs, they are totally easy yours, except you have to guess the price of this big bread. <laughs> Behind you, all the Zeta Delts crowd really close together in their red t-shirts, making what looks like one giant red pucker in the middle of the studio audience, not even looking at you. All their haircuts are just huddled up, making a big hairy center. It's like forever later when your phone finally rings and a Zeta voice tells you what to bid. That bread just sitting there the whole time covered in a brown crust. The big voice says it's loaded with 10 essential vitamins and minerals. The old game show host, he's looking at you like maybe he's never ever seen a telephone before. He goes, and what do you bid? And you go, eight bucks? <laughs> and the look on the old grandma's face, it's like maybe they should call some paramedics for her heart attack. <laughs> Dangling out one sweatshirt cuff, this crumpled scrap of Kleenex looks like leaked out stuffing flapping white, like she's some trash teddy bear that somebody loved too hard. To cut you off using some brilliant strategy, the United States Marine, the bastard, he says, $9. <laughs> then to cut him off, the rocket science guy says 10, 10 dollars. 
It must be some trick question. Because the old grandma, she says, $1.99. And all the music starts loud and the lights flash on and off. The host hauls the granny up onto the stage and she's crying and plays a game where she throws a tennis ball to win a sofa and a pool table. Her grandma face looks just as smashed and wrinkled as that Kleenex she pulls out from her sweatshirt cuff. The big voice calls another granny to take her place and everything keeps rushing forward. The next round, you need to guess the price of some potatoes, but like a whole big thing of real alive potatoes from before they become food. The way that potatoes come from the miners or whoever that dig potatoes in Ireland or Idaho or some other place starting with an I, not even made into potato chips or french fries. If you guess right, you get some big clock inside of a wood box like a Dracula coffin, standing on one end except these with these church bells inside the box that ding, ding, whatever time it is. Over your phone, your mom calls it a, a grandfather clock. You show it to her on video and she says it looks cheap. You on stage with the TV cameras and the lights, all the Zeta Delts call waiting you. You cup your phone to your chest and you go, my mom wants to know, do you have anything nicer I could maybe win? <laughs> you show your mom those potatoes on video and she asks, did the old game show host did he buy them at the A&P or the Safeway? You speed dial your dad, and he asks about the income tax liability. Probably, probably it's the Hello Kitty, but the face of this big Dracula clock just scowls at you. It's like the hidden, secret eyes, the eyelids open up and the teeth start to show, and you can hear about a million billion giant alive cockroaches crawling around inside the wood box of it. The skin of all the supermodels go all waxy, smiling with their faces, not looking at anything. You say the price your mom tells you. The, Uni the United States Marine says one dollar more. The rocket science guy says one dollar higher than him. Only this round, you win. All those potatoes open their little eyes. <laughs> Except now. Now you, you need to guess the price of a whole cow full of milk in a box the way milk comes in the kitchen fridge. You have to guess the cost of a whole thing of breakfast cereal like you'd find in the kitchen cabinet. After that, a giant deal of pure salt the way it comes from the ocean, only in a round box, but more salt than anybody could eat in a whole entire lifetime. Enough salt that you could rim approximately a million billion margaritas. <laughs> All the Zeta Delphs start texting you like crazy, your inbox piling up. Next come these eggs, like you'd find at Easter, only plain white, <laughs> and lined up inside of some special kind of cardboard case, a whole complete set of 12. These really minimalist eggs, pure white, so white that you could just look at them forever. <laughs> Only right away, 
you need to guess at a big bottle like a yellow shampoo, except it's something gross called cooking oil. You don't know what for. And the next thing is you need to choose the right price of something frozen. You cup one hand over your eyes to see past the footlights, except all the Zeta delts are lost in the glare. All you can hear is they're screaming different prices of money. $50,000, a million dollars, $10,000. Just loony people yelling just numbers. Like the TV studio is just some dark jungle and people are just some monkeys just screeching their monkey sounds. The molars inside your mouth, they're grinding together so hard that you can taste the hot metal of your fillings, that silver melting in your back teeth. Meantime, the sweat stains creep down from your armpit to your elbow, all black red down both sides of your Zeta Delt t-shirt. The flavor of melting silver and pink bubblegum. It's sleep apnea only in the day. And then you need to remind yourself to take the next breath, take another breath, while the supermodels walk on sparkle high heels, try pimping the audience a, a microwave oven, pimping a treadmill, while you keep staring to decide if they're really good looking. They make you spin this doohickey so it rolls around. You have to match a bunch of different pictures so they all go together, perfect. Like you're some white rat in principles of behavioral psychology. They make you guess what a can of baked beans cost more than another. All that fuss to win something that you sit on to mow your lawn. <laughs> Thanks to your mom telling you prices, you win a thing like you'd put in a room covered in easy care, wipe clean, stain resistant vinyl. You win one of those deals that people might ride on vacation for a lifetime of wholesome fun and family excitement. You win something hand-painted with the old world charm inspired by the recent release of a blockbuster epic motion picture. <laughs> it's the same as when you felt sick with a high fever and your little kid heart would pound and you couldn't catch your breath just from the idea that that somebody might take home an electric organ. <laughs> no matter how sick you felt, you would watch this show until your fever broke. All the flashing lights and the patio furniture, it seemed to make you feel better, to heal you or to cure you in some real way. It's like forever later, but you went all the way to the showcase round. There, it's just you and the old granny wearing the sweatshirt from before. Just somebody's regular grandma. But she's lived through world wars and nuclear bombs. Probably she saw all the Kennedys get shot. <laughs> and Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> and now she's bobbing up and down on her tennis shoe toes, clapping her granny hands and crowded by the supermodels and flashing lights while the big voice makes her the promise of a sports utility vehicle, a widescreen television, a floor-length fur coat. And probably it's the acid. <laughs> but it's like nothing seems to add up. It's like 
If you live a boring enough life, always knowing the price of rice-a-roni and hot dog wieners, your big reward is, is you get to live for a week in some hotel in London. You get to ride on some airplane to Rome. Rome, like in Italy. You fill your head full of enough ordinary, boring crap, and your payoff is that giant supermodels will give you a snowmobile? <laughs> if this game show wants to see how smart you really are, they need to ask you how many calories in a regular onion cheddar cheese bagel. Go ahead, ask you the price of your cell phone minutes any hour of the day. Ask you about the cost of a ticket for going 30 miles over the speed limit. Ask the round-trip fare to Cabo for spring break. Down to the penny, you can tell them the decent price of, of decent seats for the Panic at the Disco reunion tour. <laughs> they should ask you the price of a Long Island iced tea, the price of Marcia Sanders' abortion. <laughs> ask about your expensive herpes medication that you have to take, but you don't want your folks to know you need. Ask the price of your history of European art textbook, which costs 300 bucks, fuck you very much. <laughs> they need to ask what that stamp of Hello Kitty set you back. The sweatshirt granny, she bids some regular amount of money for her showcase. Just like always, the numbers of her bid appear in tiny lights, glowing on the front of her contestant desk where she stands. Here. All the Zeta Delts are yelling. Your phone keeps ringing and ringing. For your showcase, a supermodel rolls out 500 pounds of raw beef steak. <laughs> the steaks fit inside a big barbecue. The barbecue fits aboard a speedboat that fits inside a trailer for towing it, that fits a massive fifth wheel pickup, that fits inside the garage of a brand new house in San Francisco. San Francisco, like in California. Meantime, all the Zeta Delts all stand up. They get to their feet and they step up on their audience seats, cheering and waving, not chanting your name, but chanting Zeta Delt, chanting Zeta Delt, chanting Zeta Delt, loud enough so it records for the broadcast. It's probably the acid. <laughs> But here you are battling some old nobody that you've never met, fighting over shit that you don't even want. Probably it's the asset. <laughs> but right here and now, fuck declaring a business major. Fuck general principles of accounting 301. Stuck partway down your throat, something makes you gag. And on purpose, by accident, you bid a million, trillion, <laughs> gazillion dollars, <laughs> and 99 cents. <laughs> and everything shuts down to quiet. Maybe just that little clicking sounds of all those Las Vegas lights blinking on and off, on and off, on and off. It's like forever later when the game show host gets up too close, standing at your elbow, and he hisses, you can't do that. <laughs> the host hisses, 
You have to play this game to win. Up close, his host face looks cracked into a million billion jagged fragments only glued back together with pink makeup like Humpty Dumpty or a jigsaw puzzle. His wrinkles like the battle scars of playing his same TV game since forever started. All his gray hairs always combed in that same direction. The big voice asks, that big deep voice booming out of nowhere, the voice of some gigantic giant man you can't ever see. He demands, could you please repeat your bid? And maybe you don't know what you want out of your life, at least not yet, but you know it's not a fucking grandfather clock. <laughs> a million, trillion, you say? A number too big to fit on the front of your contestant desk. <laughs> More zeros than all the bright lights in the game show world. And probably it's the Hello Kitty, but tears slop out both your eyes and you're crying because for the first time since you were a little kid, you don't know what comes next. Tears wrecking the front of your red t-shirt, turning the red parts black so the Greek Omega deals don't make any sense. The voice of one Zeta Delt alone in all that big quiet audience, somebody yells, you suck. <laughs> On the little screen of your phone, a text message says, asshole. <laughs> the text, it's from your mom. <laughs> the sweatshirt grandma, she's crying because she won. You're sobbing because you don't know why. It turns out the granny wins the snowmobiles and the fur coat. She wins the speedboat and the beefsteaks, the table and chairs and sofa all the prizes of both the showcases because your bid was just way, way too high. <laughs> Nothing is worth all that you think it is. The granny is jumping around her bright white false teeth, throwing smiles in every direction. The game show host gets everybody started clapping their hands, except the Zeta Delts don't. The family of the old granny climbs up on stage all the kids and grandkids and great-grandkids of her, and they wander over to touch the shiny sports utility vehicle, touch the supermodels. The granny plants red lipstick kisses all over the fractured pink face of the game show host. She's saying, thank you, saying thank you, saying thank you, right up to when her granny eyes roll up backward inside her head and her hand grabs at the sweatshirt where it covers her heart. That's loser. So, as a head start for the next round of dolls, if you got a question, you get a doll. So, who's got a question? Me? Yeah, you, right there. Stan. Good. Oh, thanks. Is it a girl? I, I just want to hear you say your last name for me. Mm. 
Can you pronounce it for me so that I can correct everyone that tells me that I say it wrong? My family always says Polonek. Polonek. Yeah, and by, when my great-grandparents immigrated from the Ukraine, they dropped out a bunch of letters like a lot of Polonics do. And uh, when my father went into the military, they said that unless his name agreed with the Ellis Island records, you know, he would have to change it back. So that's why it's that long. We've tried, uh, but it, we pronounce it Polonic. Uh, so we're going to try to go girl-boy, so how about boy this time? And I'm going to let Rick choose because I can barely see. Uh, you right there, hand up front row. Your boy? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Stand up! <laughs> Have I murdered anyone? Yeah. No, sorry. <laughs> I uh, I haven't had to go that far. I'm sure I know people who have murdered people, but no, sorry. That's next question. <laughs> I see girl right there. You, you're a girl, right? Yeah. Good. Writing Rant was very much like sort of shooting a movie uh, that you can, you can shoot it or you can write it completely out of order and kind of focusing on each person's aspect of the story and getting their voices kind of as, as unique as you want to do it for each person and then to intercut it like you would edit film. And that's kind of the fun of writing in a nonfiction form is that you don't have to reinvent the transitions. The, the transitions are dictated by the form. You know, and my classic example is always Citizen Kane, where the nonfiction form is, is newsreels. So you can go anywhere in time and, every, and anywhere in perspective as long as you keep passing through those, those reporters, you know, those guys that are always in silhouette who are talking into the phone saying, who are you gonna talk to next? I'm gonna talk to the wife. You know, where are you going to go? She's in Atlantic City. I understand she runs a, a, the nightclub. And it provides the setup, the nonfiction setup, for the next jump in, in that segment of the story. Or when, uh, when Orson Welles did War of the Worlds on the radio, using a, a, a news broadcast format dictated using very banal dance music in between. And, and that dance music would be this sort of bit, that bland thing that would imply the passage of time, because that's always a big chore in fiction. How do you imply that time is past without writing a book that lasts for years? And, you know, the music between the news broadcasts allowed for that jump in time, and also it reinforced what was said that when it wasn't that, that sort of you know, now from the ballroom at the top of the uh, Mark Hopkins, here's so-and-so's dance band, so that the news broadcast stood out all the more. So using a nonfiction form like in Rant allows you uh, 
dictates a structure, dictates the transitions, so you don't have to invent them. And you don't have to use really wordy transitions. You know, 15 weeks later, Sylvia found that it burned when she peed. You know, <laughs> because you all are the most sophisticated audience that has ever, ever existed. You have seen so many stories and you've seen them told in so many different ways that you no longer have to be sort of spoon-fed and led from one plot point to the next with these wordy transitions that, that the story can just cut direct, cut direct, ongoingly, and intercut different perspectives and jump around temporally in time. And you will stay with it because you're so smart, but a lot of writers don't want to trust you and they want to really make sure that you stay with the story. And that was the joy of Rant, is that it really allowed for cutting the story into fragments and then juxtaposing those fragments for a better effect and better pacing and making a, a book that was as much like film as I could possibly do. So, thanks. I, I, they're going to allow me one more question, so. It's a boy. Uh, oh, right there. We got <laughs> Hello. Uh, you started talking about putting a story together. I think it was Fight Club. You said then all you need to do is add filler. And I've learned so much from your books about like, you know, how artificial flowers are made, which is usually in detail. Every muscle and how you snarl and which muscle it is that makes it happen and all the, that type of uh, expertise that you put in your books. Is that what you call filler? And and how much study do you do? The, uh, in, I would say there's a distinction between what I think of as filler and what I think of as um, breading. <laughs> what I think of as bridges. Because a lot of times when I write short stories that eventually assemble like Fight Club, I'll look for where I need bridges, where there needs to be something between one plot point and another plot point so that everything doesn't happen paced too closely together so that you can build suspension and you can keep things unresolved. Because that's a really nice thing to steal from the movies, is to always ask more questions than you answer. Always create more unresolved energy than you ever resolve. And then to resolve all of the energy as quickly as you as possibly can in the last sort of few scenes of the story. And so a lot of times you need bridges as just that sort of bland something between really strong dynamic plot points. And the, uh, the kind of filler or the breader, the sort of nonfiction stuff that you're talking about, beauty hints or house cleaning tips or anatomy stuff, or in the case of Snuff, uh, the porn movie titles and also the, uh, the Hollywood starlet beauty hints that, that ultimately scarred famous movie stars. That stuff serves so many purposes. Number one, it's good pacing. It paces out the physical action and it acts as a contrast between dialogue and gesture. You kind of have three things that you can do in a scene. One is gesture, one is dialogue, and one is that sort of internal running narrative of factual stuff. And those are the three things I do because I hate to do description. 
because description is just going to slow my plot down. You all know what stuff looks like. I don't need to tell you. The worst verbs you can use are is and have, or any form of is or have. Cynthia was a beautiful redhead. Is. Passive verb. So by using dialogue and gesture and, in a way, this nonfiction filler stuff, the nonfiction filler stuff, number one, establishes authority. It's something smart. It, it says, I, this character knows what they're talking about. They know this really, really well. And so you start to believe, if you can believe these little factual things, you'll believe the great big lie. You'll believe that Tyler and Jack are the same person. And number two, those little nonfiction things betray state of mind. You know, that if someone is talking about all the movies in which actors have died or killed themselves, they're probably not in a good mood. <laughs> and that's the other thing you can't do in minimalism. You can't say, Cynthia was terribly angry that day, or depression washed over Timothy. <laughs> you can't say that. You have to always find a way of making that distinction, depression, anger, happiness, lust, occur in the reader's mind. You can't put it on the page. And sometimes you can cheat. I am Joe's white knuckles. And you can create a convention for sort of stating that emotional state of mind. But other times, you just you imply it by the nonfiction sort of running narrative or filler that they're constantly you know, mulling over in their heads. Establishes authority. It allows for more effective pacing of dialogue and gesture and it betrays or portrays state of mind more effectively than just overtly stating you know, how the character feels right then. So those are the three things that I think those, those little nonfiction bits do most effectively. Um, so now let's, uh, let's get rid of the last of the dolls. Okay, on your mark, get set, go. Come on. So, be on the lookout. Okay, remember to hold him up by the ankles once you get it blown up, and that will be the proof. If it stands on its own, it's blown up.
Okay. So, objects in stories. I really love to use an object in a story because it allows a character a prop to be always doing something with, to balance out anything they might say, to keep the dialogue down to a, a minimum. And in snuff, the objects are the blow-up dolls and, uh, and cyanide pills. And I really wanted to bring you all cyanide pills, but <laughs> that's not going to happen. And, uh, and the bouquet of wilting flowers. And there is one other object. Who said it? Here's the book. Autograph hounds. And boy, a long time ago, probably your grandma's generation, uh, people used to have these canvas dogs that they would have all their friends write their names on. And they were called autograph hounds. And you kept them in your teenage girl bedroom. And to prove how really pathetic my life is, <laughs> I spent my winter watching marathons of To Catch a Predator. <laughs> a show I dream of being on. <laughs> and signing autograph hounds. So, here you go. So, thank you very much. Thank you. So. so Chuck, Chuck is going to be signing out in the lobby again for those who have tickets for the book signing and those who have not gotten their book signed. As long as you have a ticket, he'll be signing books out in the lobby. coming and if you want to hear this go to the agony column search for it and on the web you can find this hear this here in our interview I today I did with Chuck
Thanks for coming. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.